Welcome to another episode of Inside Golden State Politics. I'm Bill Boyarski, former city editor and columnist for the Los Angeles Times. And I'm Sherry Bebich, Jeffy political analyst and self-styled media maven, coming to you this week from the Donald Trump Traumatic Stress Disorder Clinic. Enough people, no more books. Over to you, Bill. Well, Sherry, I can assure you that that uh, center is not a nonprofit center. <laughs> I don't think Donald Trump <laughs> knows the meaning of the word nonprofit, Bill. No matter what happens, we're in a mess. And Democrats in control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, and they have labored to pass the centerpieces of the Biden program. The Republicans have opted out of the system. (laughs) They want want to bring down democracy, get control of Congress, and get Trump elected in 2024. Tell us what you really think, Bill. (laughs) You know, when I started writing my column many years ago, my friend, the late Nina Green, sent me an email saying, Free at last, free at last. And you are. Free from the confines of conventional journalism. So what do you think? Well, I agree. I totally agree. I have never in my life seen anything like the dysfunctional environment we're looking at in Washington. And, you know, I I stare at the Republicans and say, what happened? What happened? How did they get? to the point where they are as much an anti-democratic cult as a political party. I mean, how did we get here? Nothing can get accomplished. Our elected officials don't trust one another. It's not enough that citizens no longer trust their elected officials. Elected officials don't trust each other. And it's not only inter-party. It's intra-party, the gridlock and the nastiness that we're seeing on Capitol Hill right now basically is a matter of intra-party warfare within the Democratic Party, liberals versus centrists, rural versus, versus urban. It's, it's nasty, and, and nobody trusts one another. You can't do anything. You can't compromise in the positive sense. You can't move policy unless there's some trust between the parties. Ha! Huh. Each party believes, and they're both probably right, that this is a game of chicken. And it's pure politics looking toward the midterm elections in 2022. Now, please interrupt, or this will be a three-hour monologue. Back to you. You know, Sherry, you mentioned the differences, rural, urban, and all that. When we were starting out years ago uh, up in Sacramento, the differences between urban and uh, rural were absolutely intense. Exactly. The uh, racial differences were intense. Geographical, the differences between the coast and the Central Valley were, and the, and the lumbering counties in the far north 
were really, really angry. I mean, I remember going up and doing stories up in uh, in Humboldt County, and then it was like those lumber people were really angry. But it all operated. What has happened? What, <laughs> what has happened to give it this special bit of meanness that we have today? Oh, well, first of all, there was some batting back and forth, particularly in the legislature, as you recall, between rural and urban, mainly the rural communities once um, the state Senate was reapportioned so that um, northern rural districts didn't have more cows than people represented in the legislature. There was really some bad blood. And there still is a little bit of that going on in the North today with the secessionists who still believe in separating from California and forming the state of Jefferson. But what, well, the simple answer is this. Donald Trump has given us permission not only to be bullies but to be rigid in our perspective on the world and on our leaders it's that's the that's the simple answer of course it goes much deeper than that and it does have to do with the fact that going back to urban and rural the rural population is a significant minority right now, both economically and in terms of demography. They don't have the power that they they once had. And it goes back to, you'll recall Alvin Barkley's observation that to be a great senator, first, you got to get elected. And what's going on in Washington now has everything to do with getting elected. The debt limit, the the legislation that is being fought over now, all of that has been weaponized politically, significantly so by the Republicans, but not only by the Republicans. Uh, the progressives within the Democratic Party are also taking a very rigid stand on them. That's part, I think, of what is happening. What about you? Well, I think of past leaders, even not too long ago, Paul Ryan, the Republican from uh, Wisconsin, a member of Congress, and who was on his way to becoming speaker, he was demonized by the Democrats, but actually was uh, quite a reasonable fellow. And he has now been, in effect, kicked out of the Republican Party. And the next speaker our guy from Bakersfield. Hi, Kevin. Kevin, after making a mistake and briefly criticizing the president for his conduct on January 6th, he quickly recanted and dashed down to Mar-a-Lago to uh, kiss the ring. And other parts of the body. And other parts of the body. So it's it's a different character of people. Yeah, because it's a different political environment, um, because we are a different community or a lack of community. Um, how did it happen? I mean, really, how did it happen? How did we get here? I still 
for the life of me, am astonished by what has happened to the Republican Party, their complete disregard for the public good. And that's the way I see it. And I'm, I'm not being biased. I'm being truthful. Complete disregard for the public good to make political points. They're, they're teetering on the end edge of a very dangerous situation. I keep thinking back, and it's not enough, and I know it, to the fact that we don't really educate children, even adults, about what democracy is, how we preserve and why we should preserve democracy. It does have to do with education. Well, I was thinking, talking about education on complicated things. One factor in all of this has been the gerrymandering of legislative districts. Nothing, gerrymandering, please. Gerrymandering. Uh, nothing could be more arcane and <laughs> except for nerds like us, uh, less interesting, but extremely important. Explain what you're talking about. Every 10 years, the uh, legislative and congressional districts, also city council and county supervisorial districts, are redistricted and the Boundaries are redrawn and the maps are redrawn to uh, reflect changes in the population. Numbers. Numbers. So uh, the population of a state goes down. They lose members of Congress like California did. If it goes up like Texas, then they gain members of Congress. That's, that's actually all people have to know about it. The move, and it happened a decade ago, was the Republicans saw this as their opportunity to change government. While the Democrats were running around uh, in the glamour of national politics, getting Barack Obama elected, being famous, being featured in the media, this guy, Tom DeLay, who was this- A member Congress, of the House of Representatives. Member of the House of Representatives. From Texas. From Texas. He saw that the what to do is to gain control of all of these state legislatures. And governorships. And governorships. And he sent a lot of money and expertise into these districts, into these states. And over the years, and you could see it happening, more and more state legislatures became Republican, more and more governors became Republican. And now... The Republicans have a vice grip on the reapportionment project. These legislatures that they created are really in charge. And many of which will have the final say on what these districts look like. And of course, then the governor, and in the case of several states that do have what they call a trifecta, a Republican governor and a fully Republican legislature, that means an awful lot. And it certainly it doesn't help Democrats in terms of running effective candidates and gaining seats within the legislature. Don't you think the Democrats were a little slow on the update? <laughs> oh, they just actually blew it. And I think you're right. There, there has always been at least in the last few decades, 
uh, focused by the Democratic Party on the wonderfulness of national politics. Um, that really did define the Democratic Party. I'm not sure why. Somebody might know and tell us, but I've got to look at that. But it's interesting. That has become increasingly apparent to me since California introduced term limits. It may change now that term limits are longer, but if you're only in the, the assembly for six years, the state senate for eight years, you're looking around for another position to jump to. And it's ironic, but Congress, which does not have term limits, seems to be very attractive to many California politicians. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with it too. You know, there's another point that you often talk about, and that's the influence of the social media. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, would you like to weigh in first? No, I'd like you to weigh in. <laughs> oh, boy. All righty. No, I mean, it's clear to me that what we see happening is the ability of people, first of all, to narrow their perspective on what they want to see and hear narrow their perspective on the news, while at the same time, we're faced first with a geographic expansion of channels for communication. What I'm saying is that, you know, we, we go with the people that we feel more comfortable with. It's called the hypodermic theory of political communication. We just poke into our brains stuff that we believe or want to believe. And that sets up parameters, that sets up boundaries with regard to people. People become very mean and we slice and dice our communities because of the impact of social media. Plus there's the added dynamic that anybody can re redraw district lines now. All you need is a computer and the, and the software that you need. So there are a lot more people involved formally and informally with the fight that goes on when districts have to be redrawn, particularly when, as will be the case in California, you will drop a district. We're going to go from 53 congressional districts to 52. And there will be, even with our so-called nonpartisan reapportionment commission, there will be blood on the floor, up and down the level of governments before this is over. Now your turn. In reapportionment, geography has always been very important. I remember oh, yeah. in my youth, uh, there was an assemblyman from uh, San Francisco whose name was Charlie Myers. That's right. And, and he was Catholic. And he got into this incredible fight and whined and moaned because his church was taken out, taken of, his out of his district and put in another district. Well, he actually, he was probably right. He knew everybody in both areas and he knew it would hurt him. It's become a lot more sophisticated now because of our friend the computer has made the tabulation of boundaries. As you say, anyone can do them, not everyone. I don't think I could. But 
made the the tabulation of things very important. And so, like around my house, uh, running for the assembly, and the and the map takes away four blocks of Westwood Boulevard from my district and gives it to my opponent's district. Well, I could tell from the map that was a that would be a really big loss, and so that's part of it. There's a meanness, though. There's a meanness everywhere, haven't you noticed? I mean, this is something that I'm trying to compute. And, you know, and I am certainly not defending meanness, but politics is a reflection of society, of culture, of us. We're mean. <laughs> we are, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the inequities that we see day to day, whether it is a nasty reaction to the homeless who are spread all over the city, the state, the country, whether it is the me generation, I don't know. But I'm seeing, even on the streets and the highways, a nastiness that I haven't seen for a very long time. I think that's true. You know, it's what's always forgotten as we're talking about the politics of this, we forget, and the media really forgets, what's at stake in these fights over uh, the Biden program, uh, infrastructure and, uh, and all of the social welfare program. We get into the politics of it, but there's actually a lot at stake here, like this $3.5 billion uh, infrastructure bill Trillion, dear, trillion. <laughs> trillion. By the way, it's not a it's not a bill at all. It's what they call a framework. A framework. It's it's sort of a roadmap with none of the roads filled out. And, <laughs> That's appropriate, and, and, don't you think? <laughs> right. If this thing passes, they're going to have to go back and fill in the roads and the highways and the freeways and whatever else goes into the framework. But it's tremendously important. I mean, and, and big policy issues are involved. A yeah, lot more political money, issues too, but a lot more money for health care, dental care, uh, expansion of Medicare, make a lot of difference in people's lives. A lot more federal money into education, housing vouchers to uh, people who uh, homeless people. One of the reasons there's homeless is because people on the fringe fall off and uh, can't get housing. This would give them housing vouchers. Why is it so tough then? I mean, all of that sounds nice, good. Um, but we are, you know, there is, there, there is a group, not only of politicians, but of citizens who would prefer to deny all of that. What is the motivation behind that? Behind denying it. Yes. Behind, you know, the gridlock that we see about it, the nastiness, the pulling and toing and throwing. You know, the how, the homeless issue uh, is a good illustration of why. Certainly, if there was more federal money out there to buy what they call housing vouchers, which is federal grants to pay the rent, poor people would move up from incredible poverty to slight poverty and be, no. able to find, and be able to find housing. On the other side, though, 
as you know, there's mm-hmm. an awful lot of people who said, I don't want those poor people in my neighborhood. I don't I don't want low cost housing in my neighborhood. I want my neighborhood to stay at it as it is. And so that illustrates the uh, difficulty. Those are the issues that are at stake in this. And I mean, I, I think they're rather important, just as, as with the so-called infrastructure bill. Really, it's, it's really a bill to uh, put more trains on the tracks, provide more service for high-speed internet service for rural areas, to improve the water supply, you know. Let, let me let me add something to that. You are talking about all the policy stakes, and they are grave. They are very high. But let us not forget the political stakes. It can be argued that what may be at stake here, more than likely at stake here, is Joe Biden's presidency. That um, reconciliation bill, the soft infrastructure bill is basically what he campaigned on. It's his legacy. It's his agenda. He cannot afford to have it go up in smoke, nor can the Democrats walk into the midterms without having accomplished much of what was promised in the 2020 elections. What are they to campaign on? And that's one of the reasons that the Republicans have been so rigid and so intent on blocking any movement. As high as the policy stakes are, the political stakes are at least just as high. And the problem is the political stakes are far different between the two major parties, even more different, quite frankly, perhaps, than the policy stakes. Policy and politics are intertwined. You can't have policy without politics. That's the positive side of politics. And you can't have politics without policy. Well, you could. I mean, you could, you know, there are these things called coups. That's not (laughs) policy. Go ahead. Well, we tried that on January 6th and it fell slightly short. Try it again. It may have been just the test, the dress rehearsal. If Biden is strong enough and is peppy enough to run (laughs) for a second term, he'll have to be able to brag about something when he's out there. And what he's got to brag about is, uh, you know, I I got you this new highway. I got you this new train line. I I re-engineered the Northeast Corridor so that the trains run on time. I did all that. And now you can go to the dentist and your dental care will be paid for by Medicare. Uh, you know, but, you can, but, and I've got to, and he's got to be able to brag about those things. It's got to happen first. To brag about them, he's got to accomplish them. Yep. And, uh, that is going to be a tough one. It is. By the way, um, we're almost done here, and we've, we've been talking so much about uh, what's going on in Washington. We're going to have to probably postpone a deep dive into this 
topic. But let's talk about what happened in the L.A. mayor's race very quickly, what happened in the last week or so, um, because it, too, has um, a national focus. And that is the entrance of Congresswoman Karen Bass into the L.A. mayor's race. Um, my reading of this is she's immediately the front runner and probably upends the campaigns and the wishes of a lot of the other candidates. And it is already one of the most diverse field of candidates we have seen in a long time. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, certainly. Uh, there's definitely going to be an ethnic aspect to this. Definitely. Because her uh, great opponent, her first opponent, the one, the one, uh, her toughest opponent. Strongest Kevin, opponent, right. But the strongest opponent is a uh, Los Angeles city councilman. Right. And, and a Latino, the former president pro tem of the California State Senate. He's been around. He's been around both policy and politics. And he has some recognition, perhaps not the kind of recognition that uh, Congresswoman Bass has gained in this past uh, year or so. But he'll it, it may well end up as Kevin DeLeon versus Karen Bass. And what then happens to the brown-black community relationship? Well, it will be strained. Uh, to put it in, I was thinking of putting it in simplistic terms with Karen Bass uh, she's an African-American woman who came from South Central, where she has a great record of community organizing. And she has a district that's black and it's also Jewish. It's a lot of Jews live in that district. And uh, so I was thinking, <laughs> blacks and Jews, hard to lose. Oh, that goes back to the Tom Bradley <laughs> era, doesn't it, Bill? Yes, yes it does. What is it? Back then, to 73, oh my God. We have to remember that the last Latino who ran for mayor, Antonio Villarosa, well, was elected two times. Javier Becerra ran and didn't. Right. So you get into the quality of campaigning. But you do have this dynamic that I'm sure will be written about by national political writers who will talk about this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's uh, important. There's also some other candidates who we'll get to as this race goes on. And, of course, it will be politics and uh, policy are intertwined. The great issue of this race, I believe, yep. will be homelessness. There's no other one at this point. You're absolutely right. And uh, the major candidates uh, have all begun have been addressing it and will certainly address it even more intensely as we get on. Uh, Mike Fuhrer, the city attorney who has been running for mayor for well over a year, has already uh, pinpointed the, the critical issue of homelessness and is now demanding almost immediate policy debates, certainly with homelessness as the major topic to be discussed. It's going to be, I'd like a little respite, but it's going to be a very interesting year coming up. Yeah. Well, I'd like to uh, 
thank our producer director Nancy Boyarski for helping us put this to this together. And Sherry, we'll talk again next week. Yes, we will. And we have officially dipped our toe into the LA mayor's race. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.